Okay, with that, we'll be continuing with worship, with the reading of the scripture. And so today we'll be reading from three different parts of the good book. And we'll start with John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We'll be continuing reading with Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 27. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And finally, we'll be reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This is the word of God. Right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all today. Um, I'm Pastor Rich, and if you are new here, I want to welcome you to our church. I'm so glad that you're worshiping with us. I hope you can stick around afterwards and fellowship with us a little bit. But as Ilbum read, we're in a new sermon series. We just finished the book of Acts, and now we're going over our mission as a church, which is to share Christ and make disciples. And starting today, we're going to flesh out what this mission looks like by going through our core principles. We've got eight core principles, uh, but our core principles are the paths by which we fulfill and execute our core mission, right? It's how we execute the mission of our church here. And so knowing our mission is essential to living these core principles out. And today we're going to go over our first core principle, which is scripture. And the word scripture um, is actually a Latin word for the Greek word graphe, which means writing. Okay, so the New Testament writers would refer to the Old Testament and the New Testament writings too as the writings of Scripture, writings. And let me just read for you this example here in Luke chapter 4. This is Jesus, and he's teaching in the synagogue, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus. So he unrolled the scroll uh, and found the place where it was written, 
Um, I guess back then, you know, they didn't have a Bible and book, and them got like bookmarks. They just had to like find where the scroll was, and I guess if you were really good, you did it quickly. But this is what he read. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And Jesus began to say to them, today this scripture, this writing has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so when we as a church say scripture is our first principle, what we're saying is basically that the writings of the Old and New Testaments are the first and the final authority of our lives. That's what we're saying. Why is this important? Why is it necessary for us to go over this core principle of Scripture? Well, when any group of people come together, there always needs to be two things, right? First, there needs to be alignment. There needs to be a mandate, a code of conduct, core values, whereby the group and the body of people are in agreement, in alignment, and are held accountable to. You need that if you're going to gather people and do something. You know, you look at a meetup group, right? You want to search for a volleyball meetup. You go there, and someone says, well, I want to play basketball. That's not how it works. <laughs> the mandate of that meetup is volleyball. In the same way, when any core group of people, especially in a church, get together, they need to establish their values, their mission, their mandate. And the second thing there needs to be um, outside of a mandate are leaders, right? Leaders with the character and the ability, the understanding of the mandate to uphold it and to lead and advance this mandate and the core values. This happens for any high stakes group of people for uh, marriage, right? There needs to be a mandate. Hey, what are the rules of this marriage? What, is, what, is, what are your values? What do you envision this, this marriage to be now, five years, ten years from now? For employment, you have to sign stuff. And for a relationship with Jesus. You know, when Jen uh, was pregnant with Luke, we had to go see an OB doctor uh, who had the expertise in providing medical care uh, for pregnancies and births. She's the authoritative leader. And she has a mandate. Right? She, she took the, uh, the, the board exams. She's going to be held accountable for what she does. She leads all the people that come to her and entrust themselves to her. Now, we don't have to follow her. right? We can find someone else. We can find a different hospital. But if we choose her, then we have to follow her. We have to follow her leadership. We have to follow her counsel. You see, in the same way, when Jesus comes to earth and he begins his ministry through his incarnation, through his life, through his death and resurrection, Jesus establishes himself as the leader of the church and he gives his church the mandate, right? He says, this writing is fulfilled. No one is forced to follow Jesus. We don't force people to follow Jesus. But if you choose to follow Jesus, if you want him to lead you, if you want him in your life, this is how you must have him, right? There is no other way. The difference between Jesus, though, and a medical doctor is that a medical doctor is not God. A med medical doctor can be wrong, 
but Jesus is God. There is no sin, no flaw, no mistake, no weakness in him. Actually, one of our passage, uh, the first passage that Ilbum read, it says, the word became flesh. What does that mean? This phrase, the word became flesh. Um, I had a uh, sort of a callback in movie when I was in my teens, and I don't know if y'all remember this, but there was a movie called Judge Dredd. It was a terrible movie, okay? I would not recommend watching it. Uh, but there is this one scene where Sylvester Stallone, who is Judge Dredd, he is tried for a false crime. Someone is trying to frame him. And in his defense, he says, I never broke the law. In the famous phrase, he says, I am the law. I am the law. What is he saying? He say, he's saying, I am the law become flesh. Everything just, everything right, everything good, I embody. There's nothing wrong in me. That's what Judge Red is saying. In the same way, when John says the word became flesh, what John is saying, Jesus in his very personhood, his very manifestation is the perfect revelation of the word and wisdom of God. You know, I am a, a preacher of the word of God, but I can't say I'm the word became flesh. That's blasphemy, right? I sin, I make mistakes, I need to repent, I need forgiveness. Jesus didn't need any of that. Jesus never breaks the word of God. He is the word of God. So that's the first thing. When our church says scripture is our core principle, it means that the word of God in the Old and New Testament and Jesus, who is the personification of the word of God, is the authority and the constitution of our church. And so let's say I'm a pastor, I'm trying to pastor, I'm trying to lead our church towards a mission. Maybe I see some folk gossiping. Maybe I see some folk slandering and, 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 and talking um, lies or even just really negative things about other people, right? Then what that means is I have to approach them because the authority and the constitution of the church says what? Matthew 18 principle. If someone says it gets you, you go to that person. You don't talk about that person. You go to that person, you see? And there are many other things, of course, right, that... that that is our authority and our constitution when we think about how we're supposed to live out this mandate. So this is the mandate by which the leaders of the church, the staff first, the elders, all the ministry leaders are held accountable by. Uh, you know, um, we don't lower the bar. The standard is very, very clear. And, it's, and it's, it's, it's the mandate whereby we hold everyone we lead accountable for too. And actually, our other seven core principles, they just flow out of this first one. That's, that's what it is. This, four, this four, uh, first core principle scripture, we wouldn't have any basis for other core principles, right? Like, where are you getting these core principles from? You have no basis for this unless your first core principle is scripture. If you don't have that, then what you have is people with preferences. And it's my preference versus your preference. And it's not grounded in objectivity of the Old and New Testament. And it's been historically shown that whenever the church compromises this four core principle, whenever the church compromises the authority and the constitutional nature of Scripture of the church, the church falls apart. 
And I would say that this is actually true for individuals. Whenever we compromise the authority of Scripture, our life begins to fall apart. Our relationships begin to fall apart. Our marriages begin to fall apart. Because only in Christ, friends, only in Scripture is your life held together. Outside of Christ, outside of Scripture, things fall apart. This brings us to our second text, though. In Acts 20, Paul is heading to Rome. He's saying goodbye to the Ephesian church. And in, in his farewell address, Paul says to the elders, he says this. He says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. This phrase, the whole counsel of God, is actually the litmus test of our understanding of biblical authority. Because it is easy for Christians and churches to pick and choose, right? They're portions of God's word. But what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, no, I, I, I upheld the whole counsel of God. I wasn't biased. For example, I think that there are many Christians who are passionate about the truth of Scripture, right? Uh, there, are, there are Christians who are passionate about correct theology and the fine details of, you know, uh, biblical interpretation. And that is not a bad thing. That is a good thing. But if you read the book of James, what does it say? The book of James makes it very clear that knowledge is not enough. Knowing what is right is not the same thing as doing what is right. This is what James says here. He's saying, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe in sure. What does James say? He's like, oh, you believe in God? Even the demons do. So what? What are your actions saying? Isn't that crazy? And he says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all knowledge, if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains but have not love, Paul says, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. I am nothing, and I've accomplished nothing. So knowing the Bible is only half the part. It's an essential part. It's the first part, but it, church, friends, it is not good enough. Knowledge needs to be followed through with action. And, and the Bible makes a very clear difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is intellectual, intellectual integrity. That's what knowledge is. Wisdom is the application of that intellectual integrity. That's what wisdom is. So you can be intellectually smart, brilliant, but the Bible says you can also at the same time be practically foolish. The world values brilliance, intellectual smartness, right? But when there's a character failure in a leader, 
if that person is smart, if that person is, is accomplishing success, they do not value the character and the foolishness of that leader. They value the success of the leader. But the Bible says differently. It says, no, 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 no. Wisdom, wisdom is more important. A person can memorize the entire, entire Bible and still lack wisdom, you see, if it doesn't affect their, uh, their heart and their life. But on the other hand, there are also Christians who believe that biblical knowledge is unimportant, right? There are Christians who are trying to live for the glory of God without really reading the scriptures. But, but Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says this, he says, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and what? Knowledge of the Son of God. And what does it mean if you have knowledge and you're building up people? You're going to be mature. And then you're going to have stature. That's another word for character. Paul says in Philippians 1, it is my prayer that your love would abound, your actions would abound, but he's saying that they would abound with the appropriate knowledge and discernment. Paul says in Colossians 1, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with what? Knowledge of what? God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, and doing what? Bearing fruit. You see, the, the Bible calls every Christian a tree. And um, a tree, what's its purpose? Is it is purpose just to take up resources of water and good soil and fertilization and space and just look pretty? No. I've got an orange tree right now. I'm giving it one more year. <laughs> it's four years old. I'm about to get biblical on it. Right? I'm like, if you don't bear fruit, I'm cutting you down because what am I? I'm going to put another tree in there. I'm going to put another tree in there that's going to give me oranges. You see? That's the whole purpose of, of, of living. It's to bear fruit in every good work. But you can only do that if you're increasing the knowledge of God. You see? I can only... Uh, um, Get a tree to bear fruit if I have knowledge and understanding how to take care of this tree. So Paul doesn't just say, know the word. Knowledge is important. He also says, without love, knowledge is nothing. Knowledge is useless, he says that. But on the other hand, Paul doesn't say, be loving, be kind, be patient. He also says, you need to know the word of God. You need to know the will of God. If you don't know God, then you're not going to know how to love people correctly. You're not going to know how to manage your family. You're not going to know how to pour into your spouse. You're not going to know all these other things um, other than just what you think is right. You're not going to learn how to become mature. You're not going to bear fruit. So that's what Paul means when he says the whole counsel of God. And that's why at our church, actually, we go through the entire books of the Bible um, because I'm forced to deal with preaching texts that, may, that I may not feel comfortable with. And it's very easy for me to have a bias to skip it, to go to something else. But then what will happen? Our church will be unbalanced. We'll, we won't be equipped to deal with all the adversities and the trials and the experiences of life. You know? Knowing the word of God 
and obeying the word of God. That, that is the combo. That is the combo of spiritual success. Not just knowing, but also doing. Not just doing, but also knowing. But this is so hard, right? Truth and love. That's hard. How do we do that? This brings us to the last text. 2 Timothy 3.16. Um, this passage is the famous verse that is the basis of the church's doctrine of biblical inerrancy. Uh, the doctrine of inerrancy says, on the one hand, the Bible was written by various human authors, but on the other hand, God communicated through these authors in a real and miraculous way so that his divine truth was perfectly communicated through these authors. That's what the doctrine of inerrancy says. So the answer to the question, who wrote the Bible, is God wrote the Bible through human authors from whom God, the Holy Spirit, inspired to perfectly pen his truth. And because of this, um, our church's stance is that the Bible is perfect, it's accurate, it's totally free from error. But 2 Timothy 3 says more than that. It is not just making a statement about the truth and the inerrancy of Scripture. 2 Timothy says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. This phrase, breathed out by God, is actually one word in the Greek, right? Theopneustos. Theo means God. Pneustos means spirit. So Paul is saying that all of scripture has been divinely spirited. That's what he's saying. In other words, all of scripture has saturated in them the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is saying. This is the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the same Holy Spirit that hovered over the face of the waters before the creation of the world. This is the same Holy Spirit that conceived Jesus Christ and the Virgin Mary. Paul is saying that Holy Spirit in the word of God, through the power of God, exists. The very supernatural spirit and power of God in Scripture. And that is the last thing our church believes when we say Scripture is our core principle. Where we are saying that scripture is the supernatural power of God to transform lives. Scripture is the supernatural power of God to recreate individuals. The Bible is not just a thumping object. It's not just an intellectual manual. And it's not just one book among many books. As Paul says in the book of Romans, the Bible is the power of God for salvation and the power of God for revival. Revival in your heart, revival in your relationships, revival from your past, revival from your pain and brokenness, and ultimately, of course, revival from death itself and resurrection. Let me just end with this. Uh, when we think about this core principle, right, when we think about Scripture as authority, when we think about Scripture as the whole counsel of God and Scripture as the power of God, I'm sure you, you feel sort of two things. On the one hand, maybe you feel inspired, right? Because you're reminded of the holiness of God. You're reminded of the comprehensive wisdom of the whole council. And maybe on the one hand, your hope is being fanned into flame of, of the loftiness and the holiness of Scripture. But on the other hand, maybe there is this nagging sense of guilt. Like, 
I need to read the Bible more. <laughs> right? Oh, I'm so behind on the Bible reading plan. <laughs> I need to obey the Bible more, man. I fail constantly, and I, I just feel like this is hopeless. Like, I've been trying to read the Bible my entire life, and I've failed. So maybe there are these two feelings that are in tension within you. And I'll just say this. There is no one who understands the reality of that situation that you feel in your heart more than Jesus Christ himself. And you go, how does he know? Because Jesus Christ himself came to rescue you from that situation. So let me share with you the ultimate power of Scripture. The preeminent power of Scripture is at the end of the day not what you need to do, but what has been done for you, which is the gospel. The good news that Jesus loves you and he loved you by dying for you. His blood has washed away all your sins, past, present, and future. And so you have no more guilt and you have no more contempt. What does that mean? Well, first, there is no guilt in the sense that you are objectively forgiven. You will never have to pay a punishment for any single one of your sins. No matter how hypocritical, no matter how grievous, no matter how remorseful or regretful you feel, if you place your faith in Jesus and the blood of the cross, when you go see him, you will never have to face a single consequence of your sin. Objective. But at the same time, you have experienced forgiveness of contempt. Do you know what that means? That means there are no harsh feelings, no bitterness, no grudge, no resentment, no cold shoulder from Jesus. So you don't just experience objective forgiveness, you experience subjective forgiveness. Jesus' heart and his attitude and his disposition is wide open towards you. See, church, you need both if you want true forgiveness, don't you? Someone can forgive you and say, you don't have to pay me back for that, but they don't have to talk to you ever again. <laughs> you have contempt still. You need the objective forgiveness of guilt and you need the subjective forgiveness of contempt. And this is why Paul says in Romans 8, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is thou, therefore now no condemnation for you. The book of Proverbs is a book on wisdom. And I was studying through the book of Proverbs several years ago, and one proverb in particular caught my eye. And it says this in Proverbs 16, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. In other words, even though the book of Proverbs is the wisdom manual of Scripture on how to be wise and not to be foolish, there is a provision for us when we are unwise and when we act foolishly. What is that provision? The Proverbs says it is the forgiveness of sins through steadfast love and faithfulness. That's wisdom. You see, Jesus is the man of Proverbs, isn't he? He is the wisest person who ever lived. He never made a single bad decision of his life. 
And because of that, he was in glory, without sin, without suffering, without death. And yet, in his perfect wisdom, he gave it all up. And so when we come to Scripture, we have to understand that the gospel is the preeminence of wisdom. The gospel that Jesus gave it all up so that he could gain us. And church, I just, I just want you to rest in this. I want you to dwell and swim in the gospel. And think with it in your purview. Let it permeate into your relationships and into your family with confession and forgiveness. And as you pursue Christ and you follow Christ, what does Jesus say? He says, go therefore. Go therefore, share me and make disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And we live in a world where we want to accomplish goodness and love, wise living. But we know we fail at this. We know that if everyone had what uh, the, 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 the um, sight that you have, the visibility that you have into our lives, into our private lives, into our hearts, into our thoughts. We know that every single one of us would say, we are undone. We are undone. And you are the only one that can handle all of that and give us objective forgiveness and subjective forgiveness. And this gospel is the hope of the world. Is the hope of our personal sanity, and our personal despair and depression and hopelessness. And when we have that first, it is then also then, as we move out into our relationships, it is then the hope of those things also. And that is just a ripple effect. So much so that 2,000 years ago, you transformed the entire, entire universe. And since then, you have been making disciples from every single country, every single ethnicity, every single nation. And that is not a thing of the past. That is a thing of the present. That is a thing of the future. You do not forget your word. Your yes is yes and your no is no. And you are still sharing the gospel to us here and then through us to make disciples out there. And so God, Holy Spirit, would you fan into flame this beautiful truth this beautiful power, the very power that created the universe, the very power that resurrected Jesus from the dead is in us to resurrect our hearts and revive us so that we can live for your glory, so that we can live for the things that will be eternal. And those are actually not things because the only thing we can take with us to eternity are people. So help us to see each other and to love each other as you see your people as the pinnacle of creation. And we pray that you would do this humbly and graciously and yet mightily. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.